Good morning, everyone, and welcome to this next episode in our mini-series, Getting to Better Together. Before I start, I want to, of course, acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land, the Gubby Gubby people, and pay my respect to elders past, present and future, and to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island peoples. In the first episode of this series, I quoted Margaret Mead, the American anthropologist, who said, Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, she said, it is the only thing that ever has. Today, it's my pleasure to interview Tony Wellington, who has had considerable practical experience of this sentiment on the ground, and much more besides, during his eclectic career as a wonderfully talented photographer, author, filmmaker, politician and activist. Warm welcome, Tony. Thank you. I want to start our conversation with a quote from your evocative writing and beautiful photographs in your 2014 book, Noosa and Kalula, celebrating 50 years of the Noosa Parks Association. In that book, you recount the history of the uh, NPA, and it provides a wonderful example to me of just how a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change, if not the world writ large, at least a region of that world, with global implications. You state... The NPA's great achievements are not measured by the opportunities it provided for convivial sharing of experiences, but rather it is determined and successful crusading. What did you mean by that? (laughs) Um, Well, of course, most community associations are primarily aimed at uh, providing interpersonal opportunities for people to uh, meet and share pleasures and interests. NPA does that, but at the same time, it has always had a clear intention to have an absolutely provocative and intentional and targeted impact upon political decision-making that affects the Noosa area. In a way, NPA was the, one of the first community environment organisations in Australia It started in 1962, which was the same year the Wildlife Preservation Society started, but long before Lake Pedder or the Greens or, you know, even the Australian Conservation Foundation. Uh, So it was early out of the blocks and straight away its aim was to change some proposed decision making by the then Noosa Council, which was about building a roadway around the Noosa headland all the way from what is now Hastings Street to Sunshine Beach. And what the intention of that was, uh, was to open up the headland and the foreshore uh, for the purpose of development, which would have finished up with Noosa looking like every other strip of coast uh, that's been urbanised up and down the east coast of Australia and elsewhere. And uh, so they succeeded in doing this by thwarting the local government, by targeting the state government. They went over the local government's head and they encouraged the state government to expand what was a very small national park that didn't even meet the ocean, uh, to expand that all the way around the headlands so that there could be no road and there could be no future development. Now, this upset the local development lobby, it upset the local government, it upset probably the majority of Noosa residents at the time who were all hell-bent on development. Uh, Nevertheless, what it's done is, uh, historically now, it's proven that uh, environmental measures have great economic value because it is now the most visited national park in Queensland and one of the most visited in Australia. It has enormous, uncalculable 
uh, economic value to the Noosa economy and to the tourism industry. And uh, in 1962, of course, no one could have appreciated that. And then they went on to rescue uh, what's now called Kalula, which is the uh, mainland section of the Great Sandy National Park, uh, to expand national parks in Noosa up and down the coast to prevent urban development of the coastline. Uh, they're currently working on a string of parks in the hinterland, which will uh, increase the capacity for Noosa to remain biodiverse under a changing climate. And as a result of that, you know, originally there were, you know, 600 hectares of national park in Noosa in 1962, primarily and almost entirely thanks to NPA, 35% of the Noosa Shire is now protected as national park or some other sort of conservation reserve. And, and that's a pretty damn fine track record. Massive. So who were these thoughtful, committed people? Well, it all began really with a local uh, GP, Dr Arthur Harold, and he pulled in his uh, like-minded friends, uh, Max Walker and uh, Cecily and Jim Fernley and others. So it just started with a group of people around a coffee table at home. and uh, But within a month, they had actually 100 members. Right. And now they have some, close to 1,000 members. Mm-hmm. And, and so they are, in fact, the largest membership-based group in the Noosa area and uh, remain one of the most active and effective conservation groups, certainly community-based conservation groups in the country. Can you imagine it happening today? (laughs) That's an interesting question. I can imagine activist groups, because there are plenty of them happening today. The thing I have to point out is that NPA was successful largely because of the drive of a handful of individuals. And the same is true in most organisations, whether they're politically based or whether they're simply community clubs, etc., you know, service clubs like Lions, etc. It usually comes down to one or a handful of people who have the drive to keep the thing going. Everyone else tends to take a step back. In this case, it was Dr Arthur Harold. Then he handed the baton over to Dr Michael Gloucester, who is still the current president, but looking for who's going to be next. Uh, Now, it may well be that NPA continues its fabulous work, and that work is not just in creating national parks, it's also considering development. They were instigators of the uh, low building heights in Noosa and the the non-urban look and feel. Um, very much was uh, based on NPA's direct engagement, uh, particularly when Noel Playford, who was an NPA member, became mayor for three terms. Uh, So, you know, it's been more than just national parks. It's been about the lifestyle of Noosa. And then, of course, they were very active too in the de-amalgamation campaign, which I participated in very heavily. But uh, I guess to get back to your original question, a yes if the right Characters are there to drive it forward, basically. Otherwise, it'll just return to being a bird-watching group, you know? (laughs) One of the issues that intrigues me, um, being involved in in development now for almost half a century, is the fact that at least they appear to be so, that modern issues are increasingly complex. Uh, It's not simply a matter of saying, well... Uh, not that I deny this, the importance of this, of saying, well, you know, this is going to be a national park or not, or buildings shouldn't be above a certain level or not, is to do with massively complex issues like climate change and even COVID-19, which uh, is not simple at all. What do you think we need to do in society to help people understand the complexity of issues like this? 
I think it's much easier at the local level than it is at a state or national level. Uh, You know, it's much easier to, although it's getting harder, uh, thanks to the shrinking of the, uh, you know, the, the, the main media outlets, it's nevertheless easier to reach people and talk to them about issues which they recognise which are on their doorstep. So at the local government level or the local activist level, you're going to have far greater opportunity to influence large numbers of voters or activists or lobbyists. I think the higher up you go in terms of what you're trying to achieve, the the more difficult that becomes in terms of working your way through higher levels of government. Uh, So I think, you know, there is great opportunity at the local level always to actually see the results of your uh, shoe leather being worn on local streets, you know. You're a distinguished artist. What uh, and filmmaker, what, what do you think, uh, what roles do they have in terms of helping people see things differently? Oh, I think that we all need to have our lifestyle and alternative lifestyles reflected back to us. Uh, we also need to be reminded of what it is that is important in life, and COVID-19 has done a pretty interesting job of that as well. At the moment, uh, you know, I've just put out a new book of uh, photographs entirely of wildlife in the Noosa region. And the purpose of that book is not just to entrance people with our lovely wildlife, but to remind them how precious it is and how lucky we are uh, to have such biodiversity on our doorstep because people will only protect something if they actually care about it. So the first step always is to have them care about it. Same thing happened when NPA was trying to protect Kalula from sand mining, from logging and from development. First of all, they had to inspire people with the wonders of Kalula and explain to them why it is you know, the largest vegetated dunal system on the planet has great geographical, geological and biological significance, then people start to take an interest. Is there a danger in all this of um, what we might call over-tourism, that we attract too many people simply because they are so beautiful and so protected? It's the great, great quandary for Noosa heading forward, Um, and that is that if you make a place very special because it's different to everywhere else, then people who've lost that specialness want to come and experience it. Uh, so yes, the, the, uh, the biggest issue facing Noosa moving into the future is how to avoid becoming another Venice or a Barcelona. Uh, and that is how to establish a target for the right number of visitors without being overwhelmed. And that's a very, very thorny issue. Uh, When I was mayor, I set up uh, an organisation called uh, Think Tank, really, uh, uh, which was entirely focused on this notion of sustainable tourism for Noosa. And it had 14 uh, key people from all the local business groups, environment groups and community groups. And for a year and a half, we sat around the table trying to nut this out. You know, how do we determine what sustainability for, looks like in terms of tourism for Noosa and how do we prepare for it? And what did that lead to? Turning to your other side now, you're now a local politician, in fact you're a mayor, trying to grapple with these really difficult issues. Where did that go? Where has it gone? Uh, well, it's very interesting actually. Uh, if you talk about the issue that we were just sort of 
trying to unpack, which is the notion of how to protect an area that becomes special from being over-touristed. Having established this thing called the Sustainable Tourism Stakeholder Reference Group and nutted out the problem for various angles, it actually started to spook certain elements in the community, particularly those associated with the business interests. And, and also, and particularly the uh, property market and the real estate sector. And I found that they were so spooked by the fact that I'd actually dared to broach the subject that they mounted a pretty vociferous campaign against me at uh, the following mayoral elections. So um, you have to be careful how you tread and where you tread. Um, it's not easy uh, to continue to press for an ideology that is different to the mainstream because the mainstream will always try and uh, put up roadblocks. Yes, I'm fairly familiar with that. (laughs) uh, We were having a conversation before and talking about poking the bear. Um, I was uh, an agricultural scientist who back in the the 1970s was incredibly critical, as I remain, of industrial agriculture and arguing the paradox that, that industrial agriculture in the end kills itself. Um, it destroys the land. It destroys the very things that we were talking about in terms of, of biodiversity, in terms of soil integrity. People talk about dust storms, which, of course, are not dust storms at all. It's soil mm. blowing yeah. away uh, and so on. So what role agriculture, what role farming in this local area? Well, Noosa, in spite of its lush appearance, doesn't have terrific soil. Uh, so... There is certainly a role for small-scale agriculture and boutique agriculture and value-adding to products in the Noosa area. And the reason that Noosa can make that work is because the word Noosa now has a cachet. Mm -hmm. Uh, It has value in terms of marketing. And that all goes back to Dr Arthur Harold in 1962. How about that? I mean, without the NPA, Noosa wouldn't have become such a wonderful place to both live and and work, but also to visit. Uh, So the fact that we've looked after our region, the fact that we don't look like a big city, we don't have traffic lights, you know, we don't have high rise, means that people want to experience it. That means that the brand has value and integrity, and that integrity of the brand is what supports agricultural endeavours now. If you put a futures hat on for a moment, 20 years down the road, where do you see Noosa? Hopefully, Noosa will not have lost its mojo. Hopefully, it will have found a way to move people around. And I think that, you know, changing technology will aid this uh, without choking roads and without uh, making it difficult for residents to be able to enjoy the place they love. Hopefully, we won't end up with a place which we're heading towards uh, where there are so many events happening uh, that re- residents begin to feel alienated. Hopefully we won't end up with a place uh, where there is simply nowhere for residents to live because everything has been converted into tourist accommodation. These are the issues that now have to be faced and they're not easy issues to tackle. But Noosa was a front-runner in terms of environmentalism. There is no reason why it can't now be a front-runner in terms of sustainable tourism and in terms of uh, lifestyle benefits for residents. I think a lot about uh, sustainability, and I think about it particularly from the perspective of, of the moral imperative, that this is not just a matter of technology or 
environmental protection or conservation and or conservation, uh, but is actually a, a moral dilemma. How do we get through into the general discussion that, that these are matters of ethics and morals rather than simply matters of technology? I, well, I think uh, the first problem is you've got to get past neoliberalism, which has uh, caused us to uh, view everything through the prism of economy and, and money-making and jobs. And, you know, New Zealand now, I believe, has just established a well-being index as a means of considering how their economy is going without simply looking at gross national product. Um, so there has to be a shift. And that shift is already starting, I think, under COVID uh, because people are starting to reassess values. They're reassessing values uh, because their relationships with family and friends have had to shift because of the instability that COVID's created in the workplace. Uh, so I think that, um, yes, it's, you're right, these are moral and ethical dilemmas. What we have to remember, though, is that the public is always way in front of the government. And, and that goes back to Margaret Mead's point. And that is, for example, uh, marriage equality only happened when there was a majority of citizens that agreed that marriage equality should have occurred. And then the government was basically pulled kicking and screaming uh, into accepting the fact. Uh, the same thing is happening now with climate change. The Australia Institute just a few weeks ago uh, surveyed Australians and found that 68% now want to see some really hard, solid action on climate. And we're not getting that from the federal government, yet there is a majority belief that that should be the case. Uh, so these sort of things snowball and eventually trickle their way through. Uh, but it does take people with moral and ethical spine uh, to be able to sell them to the public. I think the public is always resistant to change. But if they can see that there is an ethical basis, then they will make that shift. And if we take that even further, it does get more complicated if you look at what's happening in the USA versus Australia. Um, you look at Robert Putnam from Harvard University's new book, The Upswing, where he notes that we culture that peaked in the 50s and early 60s has really resulted back in an I culture and a selfishness, which was, in fact, also prevalent in the 1920s. Uh, so it's gone through a cycle. And it's now hopefully going to bottom out. I can't see how it can go too much further in terms of that level of uh, eye thinking and selfish thinking rather than communal thinking. I mean, you can't imagine today an American president, like, as Kennedy did, saying, I think not what you can do for your country, but what your country can... No, oh, think, oh, yeah, yeah, well, <laughs> oh, I'm caught up in neoliberalism here. I think not what your country can do for you, but what right. you can do for your country. Right. I, I can't imagine a, a Western leader saying that today. Right. Uh, but uh, fortunately, Australia doesn't have the sort of history and the mindset that America does. Uh, we have a tall poppy syndrome. We don't have a history of, uh, you know, internal uh, violence against our own people. Uh, so uh, we're, we're not going to fall so far down the rabbit hole. But it is instrumental, nevertheless, to note that this is cyclical and that the sort of selfishness that I think is prevalent in neoliberalist thinking at the moment will bounce back into a more communitarian view where we start to view ourselves as part of a whole rather than as an individual. I, I lived in the United States from 2003 to 2007 and, and worked in the university there. And the thing that surprised me, I think, uh, when I first went there, which is an absolute reflection of the I-ness of culture there, 
uh, is the polemic, the situation that I have a viewpoint and I'm going to stick to it, even within the academy, which really surprised me. And I think one of the strengths in Australia is that we politely or otherwise can actually debate. We can actually hold on to different worldviews at the same time and respect someone else's. Whereas, and so I think we're more we than than they are. And and you say worldview, and that's that's a good choice of words because we are less insular than the Americans. Uh, you know, in the American education system, they get very little in terms of worldview and world news, even through their news services. Where uh, Australia has a much firmer grasp of its place in the world and on the planet. But also, I think that um, we are heading towards that partisanship. Uh, that you start to see in political debates. I think uh, the art of compromise is really what politics is about, and we are losing it. Mm -hmm. We are heading down that American path whereby uh, we can't agree with you simply on a matter of principle rather than actually dealing with the facts and, and, the, uh, you know, and thinking things through. So we have to be very careful about where we proceed. And the media have a good part to play in this. And it's complicated, of course, by the internet and social media now. Yeah. Tony, this has been a delightful conversation. I want to invite you back at some stage. There's a lot more to say. Look forward to it. Thank you so much. And thank you all for listening. And goodbye for now.